You can design systems like long-term capital or whatever that uh, can give you smooth returns for a while. But what those systems are doing, in my opinion, are, are what I call warehousing risk. You can design a system that essentially accumulates risk in some sense, and that when it finally breaks out, it just, it happens in a big way. That's what I think a you know like a trend follower tends to do is I'm taking risk on, on an ongoing basis. I'm realizing risk. I'm not warehousing it. I'm recognizing it and realizing it. And that's just part of the game. And I think any sort of um, viable long-term investment has to do that because otherwise it's, it's a disaster waiting to happen. This is Bill Dreis, president and founder of Dreis Research Corporation. And you're listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Which is, which is highly technical. That's, and then that's also provides a certain amount of credibility in terms of my track record. In other words, I have NAV doing that, and so, it's not like uh, people are, might suspect that I'm, you know, fudging my performance. There's one question, though, Bill, that I I, I have to ask, and and obviously being a little bit 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 frank about it. But as you've explained, people would have guessed now that you're not in in sort of the youngest part of of the CTA space. You've been around for a long time. So, how, what's your thoughts about who's gonna Who's going to take over the day you don't want to do this anymore? I mean, are you thinking that far out and saying, yeah, I want to, you know, because you know, I use this as an example, you know, the firm that I work for, Don Capital, it's also been around since 1974, but we've gone through the succession planning and, and you know, Marty Bergen is the owner and run that firm. How do you think about these things? Uh, because I'm sure investors will be thinking about it as well. Well, I've been exploring various possibilities of passing my business on in various in various ways, and and of course, there's you know the alternatives are you know, I could sell it or I could uh, you know form a partnership with someone who would who I could pass it along to, and so on and so forth. So I have been active actively exploring that. Uh, at this point, I haven't really you know made any decision as to what, as to what the best way to go but it, uh, it's certainly on my mind good anyway let's jump to the next uh, section i want to talk a little bit about track record now i'm not here to to uh, or we're not going to here to talk about specific numbers or anything like that uh, regulation makes sure that we're not allowed to do that but i do want to ask you a little bit about uh, track records in in general now Again, your track record is very long, and although you've said that your system hasn't really changed uh, over time, that obviously should give a lot of confidence when people look at at track records uh, and your track record in, in, in particular. But, I mean, is, is there anything people should be aware of in terms of, of things that has improved and made significant improvement along the sort of the last 25 years, you would say? Where is, or is it really, you know, we started in 91 and it's pretty much what you're looking at, what you would have gotten, whether you made any changes or not? Well, things always look better in retrospect, you know, because, you know, whatever modifications you make over time, generally, if you, you know, even if you're not, Doing those based on back testing tend to look look better, you know, going going back. But no, I would say that really not much has changed. In other words, the system 
the system has been pretty stable over the years. I, I, I would think that uh, the main sort of changes that have been made have been in, in involving adding or changing the portfolio, adding or subtracting various markets. And, and, those, and those judgments are made generally on, once again, more, more economic grounds or qualitative grounds. In other words, if a market becomes inactive or because, say, something like short-term, you know, short-term interest rates in Japan, I used to trade the, the uh, euro-yen. It just, you know, th- things go dead and you say, oh, I'm not going to trade that anymore. But by and large, even the portfolio, even the, the commodities I've traded have stayed pretty much the same. Now, that having been said, it's amazing how, how much, say, dropping a particular market out can change your profile, at least in the short term. So, small changes can very frequently show up as fairly large, a uh, fairly large influence on uh, on your track record, at least in terms of the, you know, the shorter term, obviously over the longer term, and they don't make, make much difference. Sure. Now, one of the things, of course, having been in business for a long time and having studied the market for an even longer time, is that you've seen a lot of data, you've seen a lot of market uh, different market environments. Um, you mentioned earlier on that you know periodically people will say that trend following is dead and all of those things. But one thing I don't think we can ignore, and I wanted to get your take on it, and that is since since two thousand and nine, there certainly has been a bit of a concentration of what could we call it below average returns in in terms of annual returns for for CTAs. At the same time, we've also seen at least one very solid year in the last couple of years so but there's to me a little bit more inconsistency uh in this overall cta returns do you think that something has changed since 2009 and we all know you know the reasons why uh, uh, that might be but but or is this just something that when you look back at your data that you know this is really business as usual well, I would say the 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 most obvious breakpoint, if I look at my past performance, came around the turn of the century, and I think prior to that, and and start, and this goes way back. I mean, one of the re, one of the justifications for, you know, for CTAs or, or for or for diverse was the fact that that in commodities you you could presumably get diversification because you had all these markets that that had different fundamentals, right? Why should cattle move with copper or, or wheat? And so I think from certainly from the 70s when I got started into probably the end of the 90s, you could you had a, a reasonable amount of diversification between, uh, between markets or, or non-correlation uh, between markets. And of course, it, that, you know, it varies, varies depending on market conditions. But uh, since then, the, or the uh, correlations have become in have have increased not just between financial markets but but between commodity markets and between financial markets and commodity markets and i think that i think that really became even more pronounced uh, after the during and after the crash when things became almost moved almost in lockstep i mean that's one of the reasons why uh, i did or why most ctas did so well in the crash is that everything, you know, I mean, diversification, it's like Mark Cuban says, diversification is for idiots. But in a sense, diversification is either your, or I should say the lack of diversification, that is the correlation, can be your friend or your enemy. 
if you're in the right direction, it, you make a lot of money because everything's, everything's moving. And obviously, if you're in the wrong direction, then that's when you take drawdowns. So I think that's what we've seen since, as you say, 2009 or maybe since 2008. We've seen uh, the potential for much larger moves either in the positive direction or the negative direction. Uh, I'd say since 2009, certainly, or since you know my my returns, at least my average returns, are about the same as they were before. But I've had two, you know, 2008 and 2014 were by far my largest uh, yearly profits, whereas 2013 was my largest drawdown. So. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a double-edged sword. So so I do think the markets have have changed in that regard. I don't know what to do about it. It's, uh, no, I agree with that. I mean, I think you're right. You know, correlations have certainly uh, you know changed in, in some ways, and and markets are you know more interrelated in 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 than maybe we've seen uh, some years back. And I, I wonder. I mean. Hopefully things will, uh, I think maybe markets are becoming a little bit more divergent again, which is what we really want, I think, as, as, as CTAs, uh, uh, you know, volatility is, is good, but divergence and volatility is probably even even better. Well, I think you could see that through from the from sort of the end of end of 2013 into the middle of 2015 for about a year and a half, mm. the volatility went way down. Yeah. Uh, certainly, and and the correlation, and, and at the same time, I think the correlations uh, went down. Yeah. That is, you started getting markets moving on their own. Yeah. But you know, sort of since uh, you know since the summer, I guess, we've started to see those correlations, and now you know you now it looks like everything's moving with oil. <laughs> so de- depending, so I think I think that this was observable as as far back as I think the dot com boom. Yeah. When the markets really start getting volatile, it doesn't matter which market segment it is, things tend to snap into place and, and you, your correlations pick up. Mm. So whether it's the stock market, you know, driving things or whether it's the oil market or whatever, once the markets become, once once one sector, one segment of the markets uh, gets volatile, then it tends to you know, drag a lot of other segments along with it yeah no definitely definitely and i don't know whether that's globalization or whether it's you know the big banks i mean you could think of all sorts of reasons that these things are uh you know why these correlations are are heightened but uh that just seems to be the environment that we're in sure well luckily we're in a strategy area where we don't have to forecast as you said you know reaction to whatever market conditions we get seems to still work quite well so let's talk a little bit about the strategy and 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 the program uh, itself if if you were going to describe sort of from to a potential investor from a 30,000 feet point of view what you're trying to achieve in terms of I don't know perhaps risk reward or you, I, I don't know what what kind of way you would normally describe it uh, you you obviously mentioned that you're in the higher level of of uh, perhaps risk compared to to some of the really large firms but how would you describe what you're trying to to achieve to to a potential investor well i think that uh, you know one thing that that's always motivated me and partly is just the matter that i've never really gotten uh, or partly this is due to the fact that i've never really gotten that big is i like to give uh, investors a bang for their buck uh, so in other words 
you know, you can leverage down, but now you're, if you're charging people two and 20 or something and you're, you know, you're trading them at, uh, you know, 10% margin on equity, it seems to me that you're not really, you know, giving, giving them their money's worth. Uh, of course, now I just charge uh, incentive fees. So, you know, the management fee doesn't come into, into play. I think, I think what you're looking at in general if, uh, if you're looking at uh, fairly, you know, there, there's, I don't know how to say this, there's a standard uh, in the industry or in, in the financial industry of about uh, 20% return. And that's what Warren Buffett makes. That's what, you know, anybody who's been a successful investor, meaning a knowledgeable investor for a long time, they make the 20%. Very few people go over that. And the people who go under it are essentially are, are going under it because they're they're reducing their leverage, uh, and and just provide so 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 essentially the product that you know that I'm offering or that people say in my risk range are offering is is the ability to make you know over a long term maybe twenty percent or so a year fifteen or twenty percent a year, uh, but they've got to be they've got to be willing to take some drawdowns it's you know like Warren Buffett said he said if you can't if you can't take a 50% drawdown you shouldn't be investing <laughs> and of course people take those kind of drawdowns all the time in their in in or not all the time but in real estate and in other investments you know if, if you know the last real estate bus how many properties went down by 50% or more you know, but people don't care they just hold on and so if you can convince people to hold on through the through the drawdowns and commodities, uh, then you've got something that I think is, you know, just as attractive as, as, as other investments, maybe even more so. I mean, you can certainly get 50% drawdowns trading in the stock market without uh, much, much effort. Sure. <laughs> I want to talk about a little bit about the, the environment uh, as well, because a lot of investors uh, may not appreciate that any strategy, you mentioned a few, including your own, uh, there is a certain environment where it works well. There's a certain environment where it's not meant to work. And of course, we're all trying to, you know, in some ways differentiate be between the good times and, and the bad times to create a more robust output. And I came across something in, in the literature I read about you, um, which referred to a choppiness index. And I don't know whether it's designed to, to do what I just uh, tried to explain in terms of of uh, protecting you in, in, in the difficult times and allowing you to maybe be a little bit more aggressive in, in, in the good times. But explain to me a little bit about the choppiness index. Well, you know, I looked at, uh, I, I know what you're alluding to. The temptation is to say, well, okay, if I could find something that would tell me when I'm in a choppy market, you know, then I cut. Then I'd reduce my trading, and if I then if it tell me when I'm in a trendy market, then I could increase my trading. Well, I don't know. I can't do that. Uh, you know, about the time you've identified that you're in a choppy market, it's time for <laughs> it's about ready to take off again. The choppiness index is really a fairly short-term indicator that just tells me it'll what it allows me to do is to move my stops up if I have a market that's, that's starting to run away. So if you have a market that's blowing off or that's really 
you know, accelerating. Uh, it, it, like oil at the moment to the downside, perhaps. Yeah, that's right. And, and in fact, it's kicked in on, on some of those petroleum markets. But essentially, it's just an ind- indicator that allows me to, to, to move my stops more clo- you know, much closer than, than they would normally be. And did you have that from, from day one, or is that something that you've discovered? No, that's something that so it's way back, yeah. Okay. Okay. It's just it's just a, it's just another aspect of the system. So it's just a, it's it's a uh, it's an override, as it were. Uh, but it's all it, when it's again it's systematic. It's not there's no judgment involved. It's just part of the system. It, it essentially isn't something that's indicating that the tra- that the trend is you know accelerated and it's time to maybe you know tighten up my stops. Sure. You mentioned also earlier on, um, you know, obviously a lot of people refer to, you know, trending versus mean reverting. You were referring to persistent, uh, and and the and the back side of that is is anti persistent, uh, of course. And and you said that this is something that you can kind of prove when you look at markets, it etc. etc. But if that's the case, and 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 we believe that over time that you know trend following as a strategy is more likely to succeed in the long run compared to mean reverting or any other sort of a anti-persistent strategy. Why do you think it is so difficult for investors to to see that evidence? Um, because I think that there is a tendency for people to prefer the mean reverting strategies. They feel better about it. They have more winning months, perhaps, uh, until, of course, we know the, you know, from other p- firms that, you know, you get a perhaps a blow blow up uh, at, at the very end. So why can't we visualize this better to investors? Well, I think it all comes down to Kahneman and Tversky, behavioral economics. I mean, there's been a lot of research done on on the actual psychological responses people in these kinds of situations. So, you know, one, one thing I think about is what, what I do and what anybody who's sort of a, a, what a professional investor does is he is essentially working against, in, in his own psychology, he's working against those behaviors that are, that are typical and, and, and pretty much pervasive human behaviors. And to some extent, that's how we make money. We make money by taking advantage of people who are subject to those kinds of, shall we say, irrationalities. And that's why I was saying before, you know, that's why it was so easy back in the 70s to make money as a systems traders, because almost everybody that you were trading against was, was, you know, was, you know, very much subject to the uh, vagaries of fear and greed. And uh, you were insulating yourself from that to some extent. So, you know, that that's pretty much the same same situation here. I mean, as we, as we all know, the client is his own worst enemy. Uh, no matter how, I mean, over the years, you know, you watch people come and go and and uh, people people are inclined to come in at the top and leave at the bottom. Sure. What does the portfolio look like today? Uh, I mean, uh, in terms of markets, uh, how many markets do you trade? And, and is it, I understand that it is fully diversified, but... But uh, you know, commodities uh, is an interesting sector. So, so how much of of that do you have in your portfolio today? I tend to be, and I've always uh, this has always been the case. I t- tend to be uh, probably overweighted in commodities compared to most people. I, right now, I'm trading. I'm about thirty five percent financials and sixty five percent commodities. 
I trade, I'm trading about 42 markets at the time, but usually I'm right around 40, 40 markets. And as I say, I diversify not only, I try to diversify across sectors, not just markets, so that I'm not too heavily weighted in any particular uh, sector. It's, it's hard to avoid that to some extent, just because you have more markets available and some sectors than others but but I think you know you know say if I were to say what differentiates uh, Dreist Research from other say uh, trend following CTAs I would say that I'm probably more, more heavily concentrated in commodities versus financials and of course some of this has to do with size also when you get into you know to the into the large CTAs the liquidities in the financials for the most part. And so they just, they have no choice but to move in that direction. As well as time frame, I think that's probably the other differentiating part uh, I would I would uh, say when I when I listen to your explanation I mean uh, people have probably become more medium term um, but you've stayed long term as as has a few others and and that seems to have served them well. Yeah, and that's another good point because if you're dealing with with markets that have less liquidity, it's less of a problem if you're trading long term. If I have fewer trades, then I could then I care less about how much slippage I get when I make a trade. If I'm making lots of trades, then I then I want to have a lot of liquidity just so I don't get hammered by the by the slippage. How do you enter a market? Meaning, um, does does the system kind of get one signal and, and then you're fully into to the market or does the fractal methodology kind of um, build up over a period of time in order to get fully invested in a, uh, in, in, in a market position? No, I enter all at once, you know, and I've, I've looked, I've obviously, I mean, a lot of these strategies, there's a lot of different options in this sort of thing that, you know, different people do different things. I've, I've researched it. My, my conclusion is simple is better. So I just get I, I I trade with stop orders and and get in all at once. If you wait to get in, you're probably if it's a good trade, you're too late. <laughs> if, <laughs> that is if true. If it's a bad trade, you, you wish you wouldn't have got in. Yeah. Speaking of entries and and exits and and sort of position management, um, I don't know. My my own experience is I think a lot of managers, regardless of methodology, tend to identify the beginning of the trends around the same time. Where personally, I think there could be more of a difference between managers is one how they manage the position along the trend and also where they get out but you know it's not scientific it's just sort of my gut feel how do you view these sort of entries versus exits and 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 the position management and how do you manage your position along with the trend uh... well one thing i do that as i say my from my from the point of view of my system that is the signals that say you know one i'm not a reversal system so so my entry and exit signals are different not always but most of the time but I, I just take one, you know, one signal. But what I do is, is I, I try to maintain a uh, what I call risk balancing. That is, I try to balance my positions uh, based on dollar risk. And, and of course, that changes with the volatility. So if the volatility of a position picks up, then I'll pare down that position to keep it in balance with with my other positions. So that has two effects. Obviously, it, it keeps it, you know, like any kind of port, form of portfolio balancing, it means that, uh, you know, I, I don't become overexposed in, in any particular market or 
On the other hand, what it means is that generally if a market, if I'm into a long trend and the market's moving in my fa- favor, uh, generally gets more volatile as time goes by. And so I'll be pairing my position as time goes by. And again, this is not explicitly built into the system, but the effect of this is that I tend to sort of take profits on a on a position as time goes by. Not, not to say that my position gets pared down to a very small position, but generally I uh, I'll pare the position down over time. And so, and so even if I get to the end of a trade, sometimes I'll get to the end of a trade and then I'll have a very sharp reversal coming back. But I've still sort of taken some out of the out of that market, you know, prior to that time. So that that helps a bit. But you wouldn't be able to get out completely as long as the trend is going in your favor, right? Or, no, no, not at all. And sure. and in, in, in fact, I would almost always maintain the the bulk of my additional my original position would be intact until until I get an exit signal. Yeah, one of the questions I get a lot of at the moment uh, from potential investors and 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 also people who are listening in in terms of interest in 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 system development and and so on and so forth because I hear a lot about that people will uh, you know look at the volatility when sizing their positions etc cetera, etc. Cetera. We've now had a period of time where certain markets have been a lot less volatile than others because they've been artificially managed by central banks. So how do you handle? The, that uh, in order to avoid that your system recognizes this as a low risk opportunity, but it obviously may contain a lot of risk. It's just that the volatility in say, short term interest rates, maybe bonds, whatever it might be, could be argued is artificially low at the moment. How, how do you approach that? Well, I, I mean, I just don't acknowledge, acknowledge that. To me, the volatility is what it is. That is, I look at, you know, I have a, you know, I have a measure of, of volatility, which again is, it's, it, I guess it would be parameterized in the sense that, that, that I mentioned before. So I have a certain look back window and I, and that relates to the dynamics of my system. And then I calculate the volatility. And if it's, the volatility is low, then I'll get into a larger position. If the volatility is high, I'll get into a smaller position. And then as the volatility varies as the position develops, then I might scale, you know, scale down if it if it grows as time goes by. But these are all the, again the the effect of all this is to is to pretty much maintain a dollar a, a dollar volatility in my various in the various markets to be pretty much equivalent over time. You also mentioned you uh, you use stop losses, and I was just curious, is it the fractal? nature of markets that tells you where the stop should be or is the stop algorithm or methodology completely separate that you've just developed over the years well as i said the the main function of the fractal wave algorithm is to, is to essentially uh, define turning points in a in a in an objective way or in, or in a non subjective way and then what do you do with those well what I do with those is pretty much the same thing that any technical analyst would would do I use them as trend lines and and then if I break you know when I break trend lines that gives me signals and I also use them as support and resistance generally in the shorter term so I, I use sort of a combination in other words if I get a trend line break I also want a short term break of a of a support or resistance point so that's why I say I, I use, in some sense, if if you if you were to observe my system, you know, in, on a chart. And there's like, you know, this whole thing comes out on a chart. It just it looks like pretty standard technical analysis. The difference, of course, being is 
it's not I'm not making any yeah ju- judgments on that I'm I'm just the the systems making the making the judgments but it but it it has the look and feel of a of uh, of what you'd see what you what you get from technical analysis Let's shift gear to a, a very important topic, namely uh, risk management. How do you define risk? I know that you uh, are not a big fan of uh, standard deviation. <laughs> so so uh, uh, how do you define risk in, in, in your own uh, methodology? Well, I think, uh, you know, again, from, from, my, uh, from my sort of philosophical position, I'm very suspicious of any kind of You know, things like VAR or any kind of uh, the standard risk risk metrics. I just think that you know risk is out there, and your and your worst drawdowns always in the future. And and I find I think if you look if you look back over time, you find again some pretty standard risk profiles. When you look at anybody who's been around for say 20 years or so, or maybe even 10, almost every every one of those managers has had a a major drawdown by which I'd characterize as 50% or more and usually just one, right? You know, I was fortunate and mine didn't happen until 2013. So I went for a long time and living a charmed life uh, in a way, but uh, you know, anybody who's been around for a while has had one of those catastrophic drawdowns. And in some cases those are called blowups and they, they go out of business. Somebody like Richard Dennis did it three times, I think. You know, if you can live through those, which again is much more, much more a uh, function of, of of how well your business is run and how stable, uh, you know, how stable your client support is and how dedicated your marketing team is. If you can ride through those, then then you can come out the other side. Okay, so I'm I'm sort of getting off the subject, but as far as as far as risk goes, no, I, I think the risk profiles of to some extent you can over over manage risk. There's just, there's just some things you just have to accept and you can't really control. And I think the most important uh, important uh, factor that has to do with risk is whether the whether the manager is going to lose his head or not. You know, the people who've who've survived in this business are people who've been able to to weather those. Uh, you know, weather drawdowns without, you know, making, yeah, losing their nerve. That's exactly it. And so that's where the risk comes in. The risk comes in is your manager going to lose it. Uh, that's, that's where the ultimate risk. And if you, if you believe that your guy's going to stay the course, then you should probably stay the course too. So am I right in saying that from listening to what you've explained so far, that, that risk is really something you look at market by market uh, and that intramarket correlations per se uh, is not going to to change the way you size the position in one market uh, so to speak when an opportunity arises or is is that a fair way of describing it well i don't think in you know, say risk in terms of i'm obviously sizing my position market by market based yeah. upon volatility yeah. so i mean you're using risk in a different in a different sense You know, if you're talking about portfolio risk, then that's a different, you know, a different topic, shall sure. we say. Okay. And it has to do with how the markets interact. And, and as we say, if they're if they're highly correlated, then, you know, then you're, you know, there's a larger risk in the standard deviation sense. There's, there's a larger variation, right? But once again, 
I don't believe, you know, that's not something you, you really have anything but sort of the grossest control over. You can, you're controlling that in some sense by the amount of leverage you're taking. But to think that you can manage that in some sense, I think, is illusory. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's fine. Now, you, you mentioned yourself that uh, all managers go through a drawdown and, and uh, that, you know, you've been there as well. Uh, and obviously, uh, managers who've been around for a long time have gone through many drawdowns, maybe not as, 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 as big as, as a 40 or a 50 percent, but there will be drawdowns, uh, you know, along the way. Now, I'm going to quote uh, someone that you may be familiar with uh, and who wrote a few years ago. Uh, it's David Drews, and he wrote a few years ago that here's an amazing thing about robust systems. The more robust a system, the more volatile it tends to be. This is because robust systems are not optimized to particular markets or market conditions. The converse is also true. You can design systems with excellent returns and low volatility on historical testing, but which work only for a given period or given market. These systems tend to be curve fit and market fit and not robust. Um, now, this is completely uh, probably against what most people will feel that Robust systems are the ones that are more volatile, but but I, I, I sense from our conversation today that, that that's a conclusion you've come to as well. Yeah, well, I know David, and he's right, and I think this is a conclusion that most people who've been in the business for a while would would come to, and it's what I call. I mean, I mean this this is in contrast to uh, perhaps the dominant uh, quant paradigm, you know, which is you know picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. In other words, you can design systems like long-term capital or whatever that uh, can give you smooth returns for a while. But you're, what, the, what those systems are doing, in my, in my opinion, are, are what I call warehousing risk. So essentially, it's like, as you, and I think it's the same sort of thing that Dave is talking about. You, you can design a system that essentially accumulates risk in some, in, in some sense, and that when it finally breaks out, it, just, it happens in a big way. And, and, uh, and this is, of course, what, what happened in the lead up to the uh, financial crisis. Uh, you had all these people you know, developing these securitizations and all these sorts of things. And it was just, they were just setting, you know, setting the system up for a major, a major break. But in the short term, while, while that was going on, everybody was happy because everybody was making money and, and, uh, it, and, and the apparent risk was very low. That's what I, what I think a, you know, like a trend follower tends to do is I'm uh, essentially how do you say this? Taking risk on, on an ongoing basis, I'm realizing risk. We're, we're, I'm not warehousing it. I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing it and realizing it, and that's just part of the game. And I think any, you know, any sort of um, viable long-term investment has to do that because otherwise it's, it's, uh, it's a, a disaster waiting to happen. Sure. A lot of people say, you know, we, you hear entrepreneurs talk about it all the time, that they, they learned a lot from the adverse time in their career and, and so on and so forth. What about drawdowns? What have you learned from your drawdowns? Maybe have you learned anything from the, 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 the big drawdown you had more recently um, that was different to, to what you've seen before? No. Um, you know, you have, uh, there's two kinds of drawdowns. You said every, you know, certainly there's the garden variety drawdown, for, yeah. which for me might be 20 to 30%. Sure. And that's just part of doing business. They're not pleasant, 
but on the other hand, uh, and the problem is, is, is the, even the ordinary drawdowns are likely to cause uh, <laughs> anguish to, to your clients. Sure. But in terms of your system, these are pretty much, you know, just part of the game. Uh, when you get what I call a, a catastrophic drawdown, say something 50% or greater, one, I think those are pretty rare. As I say, I would say most, uh, you know, a trader might experience something like that once in once in 20 years or whatever and and so once again it's just a matter of living through it when it happens but in terms of my experience with that uh no i don't know i suffered but but i didn't change anything and uh as i say the the following year i was up 85 percent or something so, uh, to me, the existence of drawdowns, large or small, at least in my experience, uh, have not had any particular bearing on, in other words, I don't use those as evidence that my system's not working, right, or that something needs to be fixed. And, and the reason for that is, as I say, I have this, you know, I have this underlying faith, and I think faith is the only word for it, that markets will continue to exhibit persistence that is the trend following you know is sort of a universal or at least a a, a persistent <laughs> if that's the word behavior of the markets and as i say that's under that's uh, supported by the fact that the markets are are subject to f- the fundamental economics uh, that don't change sure now I mean, you mentioned also earlier on that uh, at times where performance has been flat or slightly down, you that's where you've seen uh, investors leave. And I think that that can be said for probably every single manager, uh, you know, in, in, in the business. So clearly, investors don't share the faith that you were talking about when they go through a drawdown. Is there anything you think we can do as managers to to help them become a little bit more faithful? Well, as I say, I think that I think it more it, it comes under the the heading of sort of customer relations or uh, or marketing uh, or dedication. So I think I don't think it has so much to do with trading as it has to do with just being able to convince. And and this is true in any business. You know, you you can develop your business so that you have a a faithful clientele, and and I think that applies to this business also so so i think the the really successful ctas have been have managed to develop that kind of relationship with their clients so that their clients uh have that have the same level of belief you know in the in the viability of their systems as as they do and that's something i haven't been particularly successful in developing but on the other hand it's something that i have in other words i uh like i say you talk about drawdowns i don't Obviously, it's easy when you get into a big drawdown to to start doubting yourself a little bit. But really, you know, I don't really, I can't, I can't think of what else I do <laughs> other, than, other than other than throw in the towel and go do, some, you know, go into another business. Sure, <laughs> but also, but the other thing, and that I think is important when people look at your firm, and that is you've 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 proven that you're not going to change, and 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 that you have the faith and. And uh, frankly, a lot of managers who raised a lot of money are, are firms that have come out where it looks like this is the next great, you know, iteration or trend following. We all need we all need it, but based on a five year track record, you actually really don't know what the strategy is capable of doing uh, to the downside at that stage. So, you know, as you say, the longer the track record, the more of these drawdowns, and people might look at that as a negative. 
But in reality, it's probably the best thing, that best evidence you can get that the manager, you know, knows what he's doing and is capable of riding through the, the difficult times. So, uh, so anyways, now one just fun question on, on risk. Is there anything that keeps you, you know, awake at night, Bill, in terms of something where you know you, you just can't, you can't model that, you just, you can't take that risk away or, or are you really that comfortable with every aspect of, 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 of the system today? No, I mean, you can, all, you can always fantasize on, you know, the end of the world or whatever, but no, I, you know, in, in terms of, of any sort of reasonable environment, for instance, I, I guess I guess an example might be, and, and that I've seen a couple of times, is is you have something like in the in the uh, meltdown in two thousand and eight, you you have, uh, or, or you might have a, a a change in in government policy. Oh, okay, here's a good example: is the the recent uh, Swiss franc when they when they unpegged the Swiss franc, right? Well, that was a <laughs> It was a big hit, right? For, I mean, for me, I I lost probably five percent on that on my Swiss franc trade, but it's one commodity out of forty. So, in terms of my overall portfolio, it was, you know, I took a bit of a hit, but not much. And I've had situations in the past where something like the euro dollars just, you know, goes crazy. You know, you, or you'll even have occasion. You know, I think I had an occasion several years ago in the euro dollar where you had like a flash crash type of thing where the where the in these electron I guess you know you, with these electronic markets you don't know what's going to you know you might wake up and the and the thing's gone to zero or whatever but but I think that's that's where trading a number of markets helps is that it's unlikely that one market is going to kill you no matter what happens I wanted to jump to uh, a section which is a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit, um, sort of more on, on, on sort of the not personal side, but as we round off our conversation, um, just for people to get a chance to to get to know you uh, maybe a little bit better. And the first thing I just wanted to ask you is, and, and this is more to, to talk a little bit more about sort of probably the, the business side of things. Um, and that's just over the long career you've had, What's been the biggest challenge when you think back of, of, of what you've done? What's been the biggest challenge for you? I suppose the the biggest challenge is 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 just to stay with it. Right. The discipline or Yeah, it's the discipline. I mean, as I say, when I got into this business and you know, one of the attractions of this business is one, I don't have to work hard, two, I can live where I want to, and three, <laughs> I you know, I can Go surfing when I sure, want to. Sure. The downside is you got to do it every day. Somebody's got to do it every day. You can't, you know, I can't take a month off and without having somebody else, you know, cover it. So it's that sort of day in and day out, year after year type of thing. I think that requires a level of persistence. And so, you know, sometimes you just get tired and you'd like to <laughs> take a break. <laughs> take right? a break. Yeah. No. No. But, but as I true. say, I'm I'm sort of aiming towards retiring, shall we say, at some point in the not too distant future. So hopefully I can work something out in that regard. On the other hand, you know, it's 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 certainly entertaining. It's kept me entertained for most of my most of my life. So and it keeps me engaged in the in the world. I mean the thing about trading commodities is is even if if, if you're not a fundamental trader, 
in, in terms of your technique, you're, you know, you have to keep track of what's going on in the world economy and, um, you know, ver- the various the various markets. And, and that that's interesting in its own right. Uh, so I, like everybody else, I have opinions on, you know, what the copper market's going to do or what the gold, you know, gold market's going to do and whatever. It just doesn't happen to affect my trading. Maybe we should do a separate podcast for that. We should, I should ask all people who are systematic traders what their gut feels are and what their own predictions are, even though it's nothing to do with with how they trade. In reality, that could be an interesting conversation. Well, let me give you my here, here's here's my yeah. my main take on 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 that, and and sure. this is something I think that is that is is contrary, or, or at least is not widely recognized, is that in commodities, the commodities. You know, people talk about commodity super cycles. Mm-hmm. These cycles last a long time. I mean, from the early 80s into about 2000, you had a bear market in commodities. That's a 20-year bear market. Then you had a bull market, you know, from the about 2000 into uh, whenever, you know, the, the uh, you know, maybe for 10 years. And since then, we've been in a bear market. And, and people think, you know, people are... are seem to be trying to pick the bottom in these various commodity markets and they're certainly low now but this could go on for a long time just based on history sure no absolutely i agree with that completely now you've been involved in i'm sure many uh you know due diligence questionnaires or meetings telephone calls whatever it might be with investors uh you know researching your firm over the years what do you find that investors or potential investors um, what do you think that they should be asking you but they, they never really do I mean what what are the kind of the missing when they're looking at a at a strategy like yours I don't know that's a good question I don't really have an answer for it that's fine there, there may not be an answer <laughs> let's jump on to the last section then you can you can think of you can always come back to it but the last section I have that I wanted to uh, to ask you a little bit but I call it general and fun it's a little bit of of, of everything sort of uh uh, put put together at the very end. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, what do you think it takes to become a a good trader, and what does it even mean to be a good trader? I don't know. And the reason I say that is, I have uh, I have friends. I have a I have a friend who's a high frequency trader. I have friends that you know I know I read about. I don't you know I read about people like uh, you know Warren Buffett or. George Soros or whatever. No, I, th- I think that uh, there's a you know a wide variety of possibilities in terms of trading approaches, and I think of course uh, it goes without saying that people would tend to pick a, a a trading approach that fits their personality. But I guess the I guess the bottom line for me would be discipline, and that uh, that is I think that anyone who's who's a successful trader long term has developed a, a discipline, and in fact, I think that all successful traders are systems traders. They just don't maybe characterize themselves as that way. But I think as a trader becomes you know more and more experienced, he becomes more and more uh, disciplined in, in terms of his, his whatever approach that, that uh, he or she is, is using. And so the advantage just to being a systems trader is that you enforce that discipline from the get-go, even though I'm sure everyone, uh, you know, has learned that it's it's extremely, you know, it's one thing to to implement a system, it's another thing to stick with it. And so, but, the, but to me at least, that's easier than 
having to, on a day-to-day basis, you know, sort of re, uh, renew that discipline, which would be very difficult for me to do psychologically. In other words, I, if I had to trade, if somebody said you have to sort of trade by the seat of your pants, I'd do something else. <laughs> you would do even more surfing, perhaps. That's too much. That's too much work and too too stressful. So, so in one sense, I trade the way I. The reason I trade the way I trade is it's it's for me it's it's sort of like the least stressful way to trade. Sure. Now you clearly read a lot of books that that that's apparent from our uh, conversation. In terms of trading and sort of maybe ways of improving your trading, what what books would you say has been most influential on you and, and that you maybe want to, to sort of recommend that people should should read? Is there a couple that stand out, do you think? Well, obviously, from my perspective, the, probably the best one would be uh, Mandelbrot's The Misbehavior of Markets. Okay. Uh, which is a really, a really comprehensive sort of description of, of his, you know, sort of research and his view, mm-hmm. his views. Um, another book that always uh, was was one of my favorites was The Secrets of Professional Turf Betting. Okay. Okay. Which was written by a guy who played the played the horses, but I mean the, the whole description of, of how, you know, the, the basic idea is that the form moves away from the crowd. Right. So I thought that was one of the more insightful books I've ever read on uh, on trading. I mean, really, lots of books. Uh, uh, you know, the, the books that I think are probably the most pertinent in many ways are books that have nothing to do specifically. You know, for instance, the, the Dostoevsky's uh, uh, short novel uh, called the, "The Gambler" mm. is. Uh, is a good one for psychology. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very painful to read for anybody who trades. So I think there, you know, when I look at at, uh, at useful, I mean, recently probably the, the most uh, interesting book I've read is uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Slow, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people refer to that. Yeah, so, so I think that, you know, really is there's a lot of... Uh, The books that I look look to for inspiration, and this has been true in terms of all the going back, developing trading systems, all that tend to be outside the field, physics books or books on, you know, psychology or other other more general topics. Sure, absolutely. And um, based on everything you've learned in your career, if you were If you were going to give any advice to someone starting out today, or if you were given the chance to start from scratch today, so to speak, and, and turn the clock back, uh, but you know, knowing what you know today, what, what if anything would you uh, would you do differently? Well, I think if I, you know, if I, uh, looking back, uh, the main thing I would have done differently is is, uh, you know, I was back involved in computers in the early days. Yeah. If I would have focused on, say, uh, uh, setting up a software firm or even uh, setting up a firm to provide financial software, mm-hmm. then that probably would have been a, a more lucrative, shall we say, and perhaps even interesting career choice. Sure. In other words, you take somebody like Bloomberg. 
you know, he's selling the shovels to the miners, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Whereas the traders are the like are the miners. So I think that everybody wants to be a trader. I mean, trading's the sort of this exciting and and uh, glamorous career. Glamorous, glamorous. But I tell you, you know, the way the way to the way to make real money is to be a dot com, right? You know, entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> Those guys don't make twenty percent a year. Sure. But sure, of course, sure. they're in a, you know, it's a crapshoot too. They most of them go bust in a hurry. But no, I think, you know, but at the time, once again, it, uh, I think I think this, the business is, is um, in, a, in a sense, it's a very seductive business. A lot of people, you know, a lot of, a lot of especially technical people, uh, you know, physicists or mathematicians or engineers or whatever, get attracted, as, and other people also, of course, but, but get attracted to the, you know, to the prospect of applying their tools to, to finance. And in fact, that's what I thought, you know, when I was back working, you know, working for a think tank, uh, I was doing all this interesting mathematics, but I couldn't see, it was all a paper chase, you know, all, you, all you're doing is writing reports. And I thought, how can I use mathematics to actually make a living? And one of the few things that I could identify, or the only thing I could identify was applying it to, uh, you know, developing trading system and I think that's changed I think they're now now somebody who's in who has a skills in mathematics you know there are a lot more ways that that can be uh, applied uh, you know with expansion of modeling and all sorts of different fields but in those days about the only kind of modeling that you could do that you know had a practical application was was uh, you know trading the you know, was modeling the financial markets Sure. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. Bill, do you have children? No. Okay. So I have to phrase the question a little bit differently then. If you had someone that you cared for that you could only pass on one of your skills to that person, what skill would that be and, and, and why? You can't mention surfing here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. That's a hard one to answer. You know, because I'm not very, I, as, as you might have gathered before, and, and I've had the opportunity to, to say, encourage, uh, you know, younger people. Sure. Uh, and I don't encourage them to go into my business. You know, I mean, one of the things that was discovered or came out during the financial crisis is that, you know, something like 40% of the graduates of MIT and Stanford and Harvard and things go into, go to Wall Street. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a gross waste of talent. Sure. I mean, should, those people should be doing something productive, right, other than just professional gambling. Sure. And when I got into the business and the people in my generation, we were, we were really unique. In other words, people, you know, like I say, people who graduate from MIT or Harvard Business School or whatever did not go into finance. Sure. That is, they went out and they ran businesses or, or you know, or designed Uh, you know, products or bridges or whatever. Mm. And uh, so, in a sense, uh, you know, we've met the enemy and he is us. In other words, I feel like I, I was one of the original quants. Sure. And I think the 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 world of, of finance and to some extent the world has been taken over by quants. And mm. I think it's I think it's a waste of, of, of time and energy. It propagates an illusion among the public that the common man can make easy money, which is sure. just not true, right? That is true. And yeah. so I look at somebody like, say, Fama, 
uh, Eugene Fama, who who has always been in some sense an intellectual nemesis because he's been the standard bearer for the random walk and all right. that. Right. But I was reading and I was reading something about when he you know got the Nobel Prize recently, and essentially what he said is he said basically what he said is that most people should put their money in in, in index funds, <laughs> <laughs> and and. And I agree. You know, I think that this whole, I think the financial services industry is just way, way larger than it needs, than it should be. Well, you know, I think that's a fine answer. Uh, although it wasn't quite what I was mean, uh, what I meant, because uh, in terms of skill, it could be any skill. But I'm, I'm going to try and lure it out uh, uh, of you in in a different way by asking you whether you have a secret talent, something that. <laughs> that even people who know you might not know about you. And again, here, I guess everybody knows you're a good surfer, so that might not be your your secret. But is there a fun fact that you can share with us that people might not know about you? No, not that I can, not that I can think of. <laughs> Fair you know, what enough. you see is what you get. I'm, basically, yeah, I'm a surfer yeah. and I'm a commodity trader and, and whatever comes out of that. And of course, what I really am, I guess, oh, I guess here's something. I mean, I've, I've developed an interest in the last... Uh, Oh, 15 years or so in physics, and particularly in thermodynamics, and and that's been you know that's very interesting, but it's certainly not a secret. And uh, I find it's also something that that seems to be at least not uncommon among CTAs that they uh, they tend to be attracted at least later in life if if they if they didn't start out as physicists that they tend to be attracted. Now, I, I said earlier today that, uh, or I asked you, you know, what investors might miss uh, when when talking to you in terms of, in terms of questions. So, so here at the end, I'm gonna turn it on myself and and ask if I if I fail to ask you anything that you want to bring up at the at the very end, just to make sure that that we do justice to to you and 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 to your firm. Um, no, I think you've covered it, you know, pretty thoroughly. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Now, uh, before we finish our conversations, uh, do you mind sharing with the listeners where they can best uh, reach out and, and learn more about you and, and, and your business? Uh, well, I have a website, uh, www.dreisresearch.com. Great. So they will definitely be able to find you there. And of course, I will also put up some information on the show notes page for, for this episode. But I think that just leaves me to to say thank you very much, Bill. It's been very interesting uh, and uh, I appreciate your your uh, openness and transparent uh, way of, of explaining uh, everything you've you've done and shared with us today. And uh, I hope we will have a chance to catch up at a later date and, and see how, how everything is developing on your side. Okay, well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Good. Thanks so much, Bill, and take care. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.